executed. Please open your Bibles now to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 5. Our reading today will be verses 5 through 11. As we answer the question, how do we know that God loves us? One of the first things that we doubt when we go through suffering, hardship, difficulty, confusion, brokenness, hard times, darkness, you fill in the blank. There's always a great temptation for us to doubt and even question whether or not God loves us. And Paul in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, talked about the hope we have in Christ. But he begins now to open up for us the number one temptation we have as we suffer, as we experience the realities of living in a world that is not the way it's supposed to be, of our continuing battle and war with sin, there's always this reaction inside of us that begins to question, well, if he loves me, why am I experiencing this? Sometimes we measure God's love by the way we love, and we say to ourselves, I wouldn't do this to anybody I love. Why is he letting this happen to me? And uh, I've been questioned about that before as a pastor over the years from many people, and I understand the question. I've asked it myself. But today, we're going to be helped with that question as we look at the uh, particulars that we have before us in Romans 5. One other thing I would say before I read the text is if you were to ask most people, what is your favorite chapter in the entire Bible? Some people might say John chapter 3 because it has verse 16. Others might say Psalm 23. But most will say Romans chapter 8. And in studying Romans chapter 5 this week, I am blown away in some respects by how much of Romans chapter 5 there is in Romans chapter 8. A lot of the very same themes that you find elaborated on in more depth are in Romans chapter 5 that you find in Romans chapter 8. Things like the love of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit, justification, glory, peace, tribulation, salvation, endurance, faith. And so a lot of those things that Paul will touch on in this particular chapter he will elaborate in greater detail as we go forward. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word. Let us pray together. Our Father and our God, as we come now to this portion of the service, which is a portion in which you speak to us most clearly through your word, we ask that you would use the one who speaks today as a voice crying in the wilderness, pointing people to Jesus. And we pray that as the word goes forth, it will accomplish uh, in the hearts of people that which you desire. And we pray that because people have heard your word today, they would be encouraged, they would be rebuked, they would be lifted up, they would be corrected, they would be instructed. And we pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, one of the things that the apostle here does in this particular text is he begins to believe to give us what I believe are four specific reasons that we can draw from the text in Romans chapter 5 to convince us or reassure us of God's love for us the very first church I ever pastored was a rural church in Tennessee and the congregation was primarily made up of farmers very salt of the earth down to the earth, practical people who were very plain spoken. And so one day in my study, I had a wife of one of my deacons ask for an appointment. And in a small rural community, if you make an appointment with the pastor, almost everybody in town knows about it. Uh, There are no secrets in this kind of community. And so she comes in and she opens up and begins to tell me that she struggled in her marriage because she just didn't believe that her husband loved her. He never told her he loved her. He never encouraged her in it. He, he, he never uh, even acted like that was something he ever thought about. And so she was hurting about it. She was struggling with it. And she asked me to talk to him. And he was one of these rough and tumble kind of guys. You could strike a match on his face. I mean, he was just that kind of guy. You know, he was, he was a, a, a good man in many ways. He was somebody I liked, I admired, I'd spent time with, uh, I'd had fun with. And so I went to see him and I said, Mac, that was his name. I said, Mac, how come you don't tell your wife that you love her? You know what he said? He said, when I married her, I told her I loved that day, I loved her that day, and if I change my mind, I'll let her know. (laughs) Now, if any of you men do not tell your wives you love her, shame on you she needs to hear that but Christians need to hear that God loves them John Owen who is somebody I dearly love a Puritan I actually saw his grave in London recently and it was quite a joy for me to do that but John Owen said the greatest sin a Christian can ever commit a Christian can ever commit is not to believe that God loves him the way God says he loves him. And so one of the things we struggle with and need to be reassured of is the truth of God's love for us. 
And so Paul here gives us a beautiful description of that love, and it is a unique kind of love. It is a love that no one else in the universe has. Nobody knows how to love like Jesus loves. And nobody need, knows how to love like the Father does and the Holy Spirit does. And so Paul begins to tell us, point number one, because of the experience of his love, uh, Paul states that the love of God is poured into our hearts uh, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says that in verse 5, uh, for uh, hope, and hope does not put us to shame, that is hope, well, carries with it a certainty that we will never be ashamed or disappointed, but totally confident because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so the Bible tells us that once we become a Christian, once we turn from our sin, we turn to Jesus, we receive him, we trust in him, at the very same time, the Holy Spirit of God has made us alive and then he indwells us with his being and pours out into us the love of God. Now, there's some discussion over whether this love of God, but the first thing I want to do is call your attention to the verb used in the phrase poured out into our hearts. This verb is in a perfect tense, which in the original language means an ongoing state that has been established by a once and for all act or gift. And so what this verse is telling us is not only do we have objective reasons like justification for believing God loves us, but there's something that happens to us internally, subjectively, inside of us, not just outside of us. And what happens inside of us is we are re the receivers of a huge pouring out of the love of God. Now, does that mean my love for God or his love for me? And if you're a biblical person, you would understand immediately it is not my love for him. He pours out to me the reality of his love for me. A Christian is somebody who has had poured into their hearts what the Old Testament looked forward to in the coming of the new covenant realities where God will pour out his spirit upon us. He will give us new hearts. What is the heart in Christianity? It is the core of your being. It is where the real you is. It is the control center of your uh, whole person. It has even to do with your identity. And so what the Bible tells us is once you become a Christian, there is a sense in which you have the reality that God loves you at work in your being constantly, always. You know. Now, we can grieve the Spirit. Uh, we can provoke the Spirit. Uh, grieving the Spirit, Paul tells us in Ephesians, is when we sin against God and refuse to repent, it is as if the Spirit re withdraws the realities of the sense of God's love. That's why when we rebel and go our own way and we lapse and we fall away uh, from um, our relationship with the Lord, we lose that sensation of his love. But if you're a person who has been born from above, you're a person who is indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, Paul tells us if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. 
That's one of the uh, marks of being a child of God. And that Holy Spirit reveals to us internally, as part of his work, the sensation, the understanding, uh, the brilliance of his love. The gift of the Spirit is not our love for God, but rather his love for us. We love him, John says, because he first loved us. Our love for him is a reaction to his initiation of pouring his love in our hearts. And so one of the ways we deal with hope in the midst of trial and struggle and perseverance is by understanding that the Holy Spirit of God is revealing to us in a continuous way the love of God in his heart, our hearts. His love creates my love for him. His spirit fills us with a sense of his love for us, and that love is agape love. The word agape is used here. And agape is a divine kind of love, a very different kind of love than we have. It is a love that loves the unlovely. It is a love that loves the unloving. It is a love that loves the unlovable. That's the kind of God, love that God has for us. And so one of the reasons we can know that God has loved us is because we experience his love through the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we will read later in Romans 8, the spirit we receive does not make us a slave again to fear, but rather the spirit we have received is the spirit of adoption. We cry out, Abba, Father. Papa, Father. Abba is a diminutive. It is an expression of endearment. It is a term of endearment. I had a friend one time who had very close Jewish friends, um, and he was over at their house, and he was visiting, and they had a young son. And said so all of a sudden they heard a terrible noise in the house, and the little boy was rolling down the stairs. Apparently he, he tripped, he fell, he was rolling, and as that little boy rolled down the stairs, you could hear him saying, Abba, 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 Abba. If you know Jesus, and if you have received his love, you understand Abba terminology. You know you're loved. You're dearly loved. You're treasured. And you can't find any reason for that in yourself. Stop looking for reasons why God loves you. There are none. He loves you because he loves you, because he's willed to do so. He chose you because he chose you. And that's all the Bible gives us. But we can rejoice in that. We can hold our hands up and give praise to God for that, for the reality of his love. But we need to listen faster. We've got more to do here. All right. The second reason we can know that God loves us is because of the death of Jesus. Because of the death of Jesus, God demonstrated or showed his love. I think those are weak translations of that word. I prefer the word prove. God has proven his love toward us through the death of his son proven beyond any reasonable doubt if you understand what happened at the cross and by the way one of the greatest floodlights of revelation in the entire bible is the cross of jesus christ that's why paul says god forbid that i should glory except in the cross of jesus christ why because there a flood of revelation to the nature of who god is 
who we are, what Jesus did, who Jesus is, uh, is occurred. There was flooding forth from the cross, at least for our purposes today, the love of God for sinners, the love of God for broken people, the love of God for those who are his enemies. And so it's uh, astounding as we begin to measure these things and look at them. And God's love is absolutely unique. For in sending his son to die for sinners, he was giving everything, his very self, to those who deserve nothing from him except judgment. The costliness of the gift is clear when you look at verse 6 and verse 8 say only that Christ died. But verse 10 clarifies who Christ is by saying that God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. Formerly, God had sent prophets and sometimes angels, but now he sent his only son. And in giving to us his son to die for us, he was giving himself God doesn't say, I love you, and then stand at a distance. The way God loves us means he gets down and dirty in the reality of saving us. Christ himself is God in the flesh, and Christ came to demonstrate, to prove beyond all reasonable doubt for all of eternity that we are most dearly beloved and loved by the Father. Christ didn't come to win the Father over so that he would love us. Christ came because the Father loves us already. Christ goes to the cross and dies because he loves us. And we are no bargain. We are no prize when you think about it. We'll see that more in a moment. The costliness of the gift is very clear. Some uh, scholars want to shy away from the idea of substitutionary death here. They would rather say Christ died for us and that he showed us an example of what it means to be self-sacrificial, and if we want to be good people, we'll be self-sacrificial too. No, that is not what he's saying. He is saying that Christ came and died in my place. I was condemned. He stood in my place, and he took for me what I deserved to give me ultimately what he deserves. And so we see that the death of his was meant that he died as a sin offering, bearing in our place our sins, that, we, uh, that, that, that was exactly what our sin deserves. What about the worthiness of the recipients? We for whom God made the costly sacrifice are portrayed by four epithets. First, in verse 8, he says, we were sinners. Now, we all know what that means, that we have departed from the way of righteousness, that we're fallen, that we are short of God's standards, that we have missed the target. We are sinners. We are less than what he made us to be. And we come up woefully short of any expectations he should have for us. Secondly, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And in the Bible, ungodly doesn't mean just not like God, but it means like un-American, anti-American, hostile toward. 
to be an ungodly person, and I told you this in chapter 1 of Romans, is to be in enmity with God, an enemy of God, resenting him, resenting his authority. We will not have this man ruling over us. It is a refusal to bow the knee. It is a refusal to submit the heart to the reality of God's uh, uh, revelation of himself through his word and through the cross. It is rebellion, and it is rebellion that flows from a hostile heart. And so, therefore, the part of the work of Christ upon the cross is reconciliation because in order for God to love us, something had to be done for his wrath, for justice to occur, and Christ took the wrath of God on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to him, even as God's enemies. We were his enemies. Now, this certainly... Uh, means that we have a deep-seated hostility to God. The Bible says the sinful mind is hostile for God. It is a resentment against his authority. But we cannot be satisfied with the notion that hostility was entirely on our side and not at all on God's. Because the Bible tells us God is angry with sinners every day. And that anger is not um, an uncontrollable fit, not a temper tantrum. That anger is judicial. And it is objective. It is God's judicial anger toward our rebellion against him. And God wouldn't be good if he wasn't just. And his justice reinforces the concept of his uh, judgment, or of his love. And so as a result of that, Christ came and bore in his body our sins, Peter says, upon the tree. There's not only the wicked opposition of the sinner to God, but a holy opposition of God to the sinner. But Paul's fourth and descriptive epithet is that we were still powerless, weak, meaning we were helpless to rescue ourselves. Sinners, ungodly, enemies, powerless. This is the apostle's ugly fourfold portrayal of us when God sent his son to come to the cross and die for us. James uh, Montgomery Boyce in a sermon on Romans chapter 5 tells the story of the costliness of the cross. And he tells this story. It's one of my favorites. I preached through Romans when I was uh, ordained in 1978. And I remember I used a lot of uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse's works on Romans, the pastor of 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. But here's the story he told. From the streets of one of the large cities, there was a tough youngster, and his sister had been crippled and needed an operation. The operation was provided for her, but after the operation, the girl was going to need a blood transfusion, and the boy, her brother, was asked to volunteer. He was taken to her bedside and watched tight-lipped as a needle was inserted into his vein and the blood was fed into his sister's body. When the transition, uh, transfusion was over, the doctor put his arms around the boy's shoulder and told him that he had been very brave. The youngster knew nothing about the nature of a blood transfusion, 
But the doctor knew even less about the actual bravery of the boy until the little boy looked up into his eyes and asked him steadily, Doc, how long before I croak? He thought giving a blood transfusion for his sister meant the end of his life. And he was willing to give his life drop by drop as his blood flowed into the veins of his sister. Now that's a human illustration. And while it's analogous, it doesn't walk on all fours, but it gives you at least some level of what your Savior was willing to do in giving himself for us. We, uh, this ugly four-fold portrayal of us as helpless, powerless, ungodly enemies. He adds, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. And the righteous person here doesn't mean righteous as in justified by faith, therefore we have the righteousness of Christ. What he means is someone might die for a very moral, upright person who may be a little bit self-righteous, but somebody might say, this guy is a pretty good guy, he's a moral person, I might die for them. And then he names the second kind of person someone might die for, a good person. And when you look at good in the Bible, more than likely he's referring to a benefactor, someone who gave you something that you treasured, now needs uh, your death. And you might say, well, this is a good person. He's helped many people. I'll go before he goes. And you might be willing to give yourself for that. But, somebody uh, who is a good person. But God demonstrates, proves his love toward us in a love that is distinguished from every other love there is, a love uniquely God's own while we were still sinners, neither good nor righteous, but ungodly enemies and powerless, Christ died for us. There wasn't a cheering section at the cross. Everybody abandoned him except his mother, as far as I can see. And maybe the Apostle John was close. But there was no cheering. There were no people who were uh, praising him for what he did. Human beings can be very generous in giving to those they consider worthy of their affection and respect. The unique majesty of God's love lies in the combination of three factors, namely that when Christ died for us, God was giving himself, even to the horrors of a sin-bearing death on the cross, doing so for undeserving enemies. How can you not see the love of God in Christ? How can you not see that? How holy and pure and undefiled and far-reaching and moving if that doesn't melt your heart God help you God have mercy on you if that doesn't melt your heart how could he do that how could he love me I mean I know enough about myself now that I've kind of grown up and gotten past all the illusions I still have a couple of illusions like I could run the 40 yard dash in 4-6 I did that in high school I can't do that now I can't even run not very well 
but I mean the illusions about myself. I know from having looked at the cross, I know from having looked at the law of God, I know, and I don't know nearly as well as Jesus knows. Martin Luther said this. He said, if God ever showed us our sin all at once, we would die. We would die. So he gradually shows us our need, but Christ didn't go to the cross because he looked at you and said, well, that's a worthy person. That's a person who should be saved. That's a person who I can do something with. No. We were ugly. And I mean ugly. Where I come from, we say ugly as a mud fence. Ugly. Morally. In every way. Uh, before the face of God. How then can we doubt God's love? How do we do that? How can we doubt it when we go to the cross? And one of the things you have to learn to do in your walk as a Christian or in your life or journey or whatever word you want to use to describe living with Jesus, one of the things you have to learn how to do is things are going to go wrong. Bad things are going to happen to everyone. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be hurt. I don't get any joy in telling you this. I get less joy in living through it. But the reality is those things are going to happen. We are not exempt from that. We do not get a pass on that. This world is not the way we're supposed to be. That's why Paul writes Romans 5, verses 5 through 11, is to tell us this is what you do when you begin to doubt. My, the depths of my love for you. Go look at the cross. Go look at who you were. Go look at who he is. Go look at what he did for you when there was nothing for him to gain at all. The most selfless act of love in the history of the universe happened on Golgotha's hill, the hill of the skull. How do we doubt God's love? We can be perplexed about tragedies. We can be brokenhearted. Don't ever think that I think you shouldn't cry and weep and wail sometimes at what happens to you. That's perfectly appropriate. Pour that stuff out before the Lord. You know, when old Job got what he got, he shaved his head, he tore his clothes, put ashes all over him, laid on the ground for days, worshiping the Lord. Because that stuff's going to happen to you. But don't be thinking the way that that Mac thought in Tennessee about telling his wife he loved her. I told her when I married, if I changed my mind, I'll tell you. No, you need to know. You need to be reassured that you are loved like that. Otherwise, you can begin to seriously walk away from the truth. And you've been listening so well, we know that <laughs> we will be preserved throughout our lives because Christ resurrected from the dead. We shall be saved through Christ. You know, I had somebody ask me recently if I was saved. And I decided to play with them a little bit. You know what I said? Yes and no. And they said, well, it's, it's like being pregnant. You, you can't be yes or no. I said, yes, I have been saved. Yes, I am being saved. No, I haven't experienced the totality of salvation yet. There's something in the Bible 
that we speak of in terms of the already and the not yet. Christ has saved me from the penalty of my sin by taking the penalty of my sin for me, by living a righteous life for me. He is taken care of once and forever. I stand in grace. I am forever under the favor of God. Christ has done that. Christ now through his spirit who indwells me is delivering me more and more from the power of sin. I didn't stop being a sinner when I was justified by grace through faith in Christ. Sometimes I think I didn't have a clue of how sinful I was until that happened. And, and now I have a greater sense of that every day. It isn't that I sin less. I just see that God's power is constantly at work in my life. One day I will be delivered from this body. As long as I'm in this body, I'm going to sin. I can't stop it. I don't want to do it, but I cannot stop it. But one day I will be delivered from this body. I will die. I will be separated. And my dear friend Woody Woods, who recently went to heaven, was interviewed one time and says, what will make heaven heaven? And Woody said, Woody Woods will never sin again. Never sin again. Never. And so we're anticipating that. We're looking forward to that. We're saved by his life, his resurrection life. And he preserves us. You know, he's still at work in us. Read the book of Hebrews and you'll understand the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only our prophet that tells us the truth. He's not only the priest that gave himself for us. But he's now the uh, mediator. He's now uh, at the right hand of God. He now prays for us. He makes intercession for us. He brings us ultimately into his presence. What a wonderful God he is. And the Lord Jesus himself um, is saving us now uh, by delivering us more and more from the power of sin, conforming us more and more to his will. And the Bible essentially teaches us here that we have a standing that is in grace. And the future salvation is we have been saved from God's wrath, therefore judgment for us has already occurred. It's over. We're delivered. Secondly, we shall be saved through his life. Jesus, who died from our, our sins, was raised from the dead, means for people to experience for themselves the power of his resurrection. We can share his life now. We will share his life in his resurrection on the last day. There are fates worse than dying. And a fate worse than dying is dying without Jesus. And so because of that, I'll go to my final point, which means because joy in his love is a sign of justification. Notice what he says in verse 11. He uses a lot of more than that in this particular verse, which basically is his way, Paul's way of saying, if God did the hardest thing there's ever to do, it's a snap for him to do the rest. And God has already done the hardest there is to do by losing his son upon the cross, by the son going to the cross and bearing our sin and shame. And now, because of that, how much more are we reconciled? How much more can we have joy in our salvation? Paul asked the Galatian church, where is all your joy? 
What happened to all your joy? Where did your joy go? Where did your rejoicing go? He literally says in the verse, we boast in the reconciliation that we have with God. We have been turned from an enemy of God into a friend of God. And we have joy, a deep sense of satisfaction, a sense of peace, a sense of contentment that Jesus is ours and we are his. And because of that, we can be gloriously. But what happens to our joy? We take our eyes off Jesus. We take our eyes off of his love. We take our eyes off of the cross. And we begin to look inside. And we try to find ways we can booster and bolster our own love for Jesus. And uh, good luck with all of that, as John Calvin would say. <laughs> no, that doesn't work. It only drives you further away. So that's how we, we need to learn how to gospelize ourselves. We need to keep re-evangelizing ourselves because the gospel is simply assumed, or if the gospel, or once the gospel is simply assumed, it is forgotten. And once it is forgotten, it's soon replaced with something else, and you can do that. You ever been, I have, in a group of Christians who you feel like they always had to be on the edge of something new? It was like, have you had this experience? Have you heard this God? Have you been to this conference? I mean, there's more, there's more, there's so much more. There's so much more understanding. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? And once we assume the gospel, the gospel is easily forgotten and it has no influence over us. And once we forget the gospel, we always replace it with something else. We have to have something new. We have to have something besides Christ, something in addition to Christ. That's why you and I need to live, dwell in Romans 5. We need to dwell in it. Dwell in God's Word. Let God's Word dwell in us. Because if you don't, suffering will come, hardship will come, and because things don't work out the way you think they should work out, because you think God is giving you a raw deal that he owes you better than this because you're his child and you've been doing the right things, you're going to forget that God loves you. You're going to forget the gospel, and you're going to replace it with something else, and you're going to walk away. John Owen said the greatest sin a Christian commit, can commit is to forget how much God loves them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it, for what it produces in us, the beauty and glory of the truth. But we pray that not only would we know that, in an intellectual way, grasp the reality of it, but may we experience it. May it become more real to us than we are to ourselves. And we pray that your spirit would continue to bring us to the foot of the cross and continue to remember that love that he has poured out into our hearts. Now, fathers, we continue to worship. May we give as those who truly have been touched and have experienced and have known the love of God which passes understanding. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.